Hey gang, it's Sean. Thank you for listening to our latest edition of Deep Dive. We are welcoming back Gunnar Nelson, one half of the excellent rock group Nelson, to talk about their debut album, After the Rain. I think everyone remembers this one, 1990, I believe. Four huge singles, sold millions of copies, and yet no immediate follow-up. And why might that be? Well, part of it might be because hair metal, or whatever you want to call it, was starting to lose favor. They really made it in under the wire, but also maybe they got railroaded. And that's one thing you're going to love about this conversation with Gunner. Number one, he's brutally honest. Number two, he's hugely passionate. I love talking to Gunner because he feels it and he means it and he tells the truth. I love it. And one of the reasons I think this album in particular stands the test of time so well is because Matthew and Gunner were fantastic pop song writers. These songs had hooks for days and not everyone was as good as they are at doing that. So anyway, we talk about all the stories behind the songs, the big success, what happened, of course, family stories that involved their dad, Rick, and everybody else. So anyway, lot to be had in this conversation. It is fascinating. I hope when COVID is over, you guys have an opportunity to check out Nelson Live. I know I want to too. They do so many fantastic things. They're just beautiful guys. And I hope that you appreciate that. Anyway, enjoy this. Okay, so we're going to talk about After the Rain, which I think is one of the perfect pop rock, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, hair metal, whatever people want to refer to 80s hard rock uh, albums ever. I mean, it's perfect from start to finish. And one of the things that when I was researching this that I thought was really interesting is that it sounds like you guys had been sort of um, meeting like weekly with John Kolodner for about a year before he was convinced that he should sign you. And every and you're doing these like songwriting workshops with him. This is, what do you think of this? What should we do with that? And eventually when he felt like you guys were ready, he signed you and everything moved forward. Is that right? Well, it's only partially true. Okay, John was frustrating in the sense that, okay, now you gotta imagine the time that we were in. We were a couple mm-hmm. of unknown guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to get John Kolodner, who was our targeted A&R guy, uh, and that was for a reason. We figured all these labels, if you had an A&R guy at a label, you know, most of those guys were good for about six months there before mm-hmm. they got fired. And so, you know, starting a new act, a new band, we thought it might take a little while to do. So we needed to find somebody who was relatively untouchable and whose contract at whatever label they were at was secure. John Collotter definitely fit the bill. At the time, Geffen had uh, you know three three superstar A and R guys in different wings of the building there on Sunset Boulevard. John Collotter was just one of them. Tom Zutat was another, and, and Gary Gersh was the third. They all had their different uh, their different specialties, if you will. Okay. You know, John definitely leaned more on the side of uh, radio friendly, you know, pop rock. That was right. his thing. He had a background of ACDC, of Foreigner. Uh, of course, Cher and Peter Gabriel and Whitesnake. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, he was the guy responsible for putting the members of, of Aerosmith in rehab mm-hmm. and getting them back together. So, yeah. you know, when we were putting our first record together, John was going through this, this massive run of successes. And, you know, I think a little bit of it went to his head, and he had just sent Steven Tyler, you know, back to the drawing mm-hmm. board. He threw out an entire Aerosmith record. Oh. and put back the drawing board. And, and, you know, that's where Matthew and I were really trying to find some uh, find some sunlight in the middle of all of that. Mm-hmm. And 
when we would get together with John, it was about every two weeks or so to play him three demos that we had worked on of new songs in the two weeks you know, since our last meeting with him. Uh-huh. And yes, we did do that for about a year and a half, putting the material together for the After the Rain record. John was very frustrating in the sense that he was never specific about his oh. criticism. There's a typical Johnism. I hate it. Fix it. <laughs> okay, well, what's what's wrong with it? You're the musician. You fix it. Uh, and those are direct quotes. And, uh-huh. and so it's very difficult, you know, to, to work with criticism like that. So what Matt and I wound up doing that I don't think John ever caught on to, we realized that John's pattern was he would shit can two of every three songs we brought into him. We'd bring three songs in at a meeting, okay? Uh-huh. Now, we had a lot of faith in all of the songs, but that was just his thing. He would just he would say okay to one, and he would crap on the other two and throw them out. Uh-huh. Now, Matt and I realized this in about three months of doing this, and what we started doing was recycling the same songs back into the same session or the, the same meetings with him. Uh-huh. And John never realized we were doing that. Okay, so eventually, John approved the exact album which we wanted, uh, the album that we wanted, the material that we wanted for the album. It turned out to be the After the Rain record. Uh-huh. But that was just, you know, by by some brinksmanship. And you know, I, I do have a lot of respect for John. I mean, John legitimately gave us our start in the industry, and he yeah. was very, very tough to work with. And I'm sure he would say the same thing about me. You know, uh, John and, and I, in particular, you know, really disagreed a lot on a lot of stuff. And we're what would you very, have been disagreeing about? I mean, he, you know, you're the songs are there. The image is there. The it's the time is right now. Granted, grunge is going to put a stop to all of this in about a year. But what would you have possibly been disagreeing on? What did he want that you didn't want? Well, John is one of those guys who basically the way he works is he's a very intimidating guy. You know, and I think, uh, you know, there's a very fine line between challenging an artist and crushing their spirit. Yeah, good point. And because because we were the low men on the totem pole, you know, it's kind of like that whole adage, you know, the the boss yells at the guy at work, Mm -hmm. he goes home and yells at his wife, the wife kicks the dog, so on and so forth. You know, when you're the lowest men on the totem pole at a label and you're trying to actually start a career, you know, we got we've got the brunt of all of his frustration mm-hmm. and, uh, and all of that from his dealings with David Coverdale, another strong-willed person, mm-hmm. and, and Steven Tyler, another strong-willed person, Cher, don't even get me started. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you know, it's, it's me and Matt that are that they're in there trying to make sense of it, and all we wanted to do was make a great record and, at the same time, make sure that that record got a chance, mm-hmm. you know, that it got prioritized somewhat mm-hmm. by the label, and it got some money put behind it, some radio power and, and favors and all that you know, so it was a very interesting time for the two of us. And again, remember, this is before we sold 10 million records. This right. is when we were nobody. We were just try- we were just trying to get a record deal. And and you know, we had a unique situation in the sense that you know we were legacies. And you know, back in that day, if you actually Google this, you're never going to find a photo like the obligatory signing with the label photo that was that's in like LA Weekly all the time, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. There's n- one does not exist for Matthew and Gunnar Nelson and Don Quater. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's all, the only the first picture that was an, for the industry trades that we ever took was when Matthew and I are holding up the cake that says number one for love and affection. Oh. Okay, uh. but there there was n- there was never a signing photo yeah. that was taken, and the reason for that is because you know it's a it would have been a high profile signing with a lot mm-hmm. of attention on it and if mm-hmm. it failed 
Good point. Okay, it would be a it would be a huge it would be a lot of egg on the face of whoever signed that act, even a John Collodner. Mm-hmm. And John was John's a guy who likes to win. Yeah. So you know, it was just kind of one of those things that we worked around that, and that was totally fine. The one thing I got to give John credit for, and uh, and and you know, he was right in, and and I was actually less right on. He always viewed us as as he wanted us to be like like the Hollies. That's how he looked at me. And really. Matt. You know, yeah, like he wanted us to be like the modern version at the time, the modern rock version of the Hollies. He heard us sing together. He heard oh. our songwriting. And that's what he got from it. And, you know, I wasn't mature enough as a musician, as, a, as an artist at the time, to realize that that was a real compliment. Yeah. You know, I thought John was out of touch. But actually, it really was a real compliment. He just thought that we were so uh, musically adept that we were better and a yeah. lot of the hairband stuff that was on the radio at the time. Now, I will say that enough John Collodner got on to After the Rain and influenced how we were doing that and allowed us to actually go in that pop direction to where a 12 str- an electric 12-string on the beginning of Love and Affection, yeah. for example, was the first time a-, a number one song had an electric 12-string in it since Tambourine Man. Really? I and, wondered about uh, that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and I love that. And that wouldn't have happened really without John's support for that particular vision of our direction. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like, you know, less white snake, more hollies. Yes. And in hindsight, you know, I think what it does is it, it gives a, a record that has less of a derivative stamp put on it. I mean, if you listen to the After the Ring record, especially the remastered version Matthew just did, mm-hmm. man, it still sounds fresh. It's so it good. It doesn't sound dated. No, it doesn't. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't sound like it was made in a particular era just sounds like really adept pop rock music which um you know song centric which is what we're going for yeah um something else obviously so much of what's tied for better or worse to this album is the image and um i was reading an article with you and i think one of you guys maybe it was you was saying that that was very you were very conscious of that you knew that in order to get on mtv you needed to create an image, a striking image that stuck out above everything else. And so you played to that. Let's grow the hair. I think it was yeah. Richie Sambora told you to grow your hair. and so Yeah, he said, well, if you want to be a rocker, you're going to have to have long hair. And uh, I mean, that was fine. But actually where this really started is, is we were writing over in England before our record was actually made. John Kalaner sent us over to work with Russ Ballard from Argent. Oh, I love Russ. And yeah. uh, Russ is amazing. You know, yeah. I mean, he's written some amazing songs. Yeah. And, we were over there, and uh, Russ brought us to an industry party at a big nightclub in, in London when we were there. And we actually had a conversation that was life-altering. It was with one of the top stylists in London was there. And this girl looked at me and Matt, this woman looked at me and Matt, and goes, what exactly are you two going for? It's like this <laughs> mish, mishmash of weird sort of Bon Jovi and and. Venice Beach meets uh-huh. Melrose Bull- and it, and she was right. You know, we had no uh-huh. direction. She sat us down. And she goes, "Listen, boys, over here in England, the fashion of the band is every bit as important as the music." And mm-hmm. we we disagreed with that. But she goes, "Look, that's the difference between European acts and American acts. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is all about that. It gets you in the fashion trades. It gets the girls talking about you. Yeah. It's really important." And she goes, well, you might want to think about what it is you're trying to portray and really think about this first before, you know, she goes, I don't know what kind of music you make, but your image has really got to be a launching pad for the music and a good introduction. And she said, look, look at it this way. 
when you're zipping through the telly, as she put it, mm-hmm. you have maybe a, a second or a second and a half to, to command people's attention enough to be distracting enough for people to stop zipping through the channels and go, what is that? Mm-hmm. And she goes, you're, you're going to be making your first mark in music. So be outlandish, be outrageous, be yourselves, of yeah. course. Do something different. You know, if someone's going right, you go left. And so we applied that where when we put our image together, we wanted it to be striking. We, like in the era of black and white spilled beer on your girlfriend's warehouse mm-hmm. videos on MTV, mm-hmm. we, in, we intentionally made the first video, Love and Affection, completely technicolor. Mm-hmm. We made the birds fly backwards, the snow fall up, you know, us going in <laughs> slow motion, fast forward, and all that stuff. But we did that all for a reason, which was we wanted you to go, what the fuck is that? <laughs> because our, our motto to, to, to everybody was love us or hate us, you're going to know who we are. Right. So, okay. so that's where we were coming from. Remember, it's our first single. Yeah. So there's no guarantee that it was going to catch anybody's attention. There was no guarantee it was going to be successful at all. Yeah. So when you're in that position, you know, you, you got to kind of be like the kid in the middle of class who throws a tantrum. Yeah. You know, for better or worse, they're going to pay attention to you. True. Now, at that point, it's going to be the substance of your of your music that's going to, you know, keep you in the door. But, you know, getting your foot in the door in the first place, sometimes it's about calling attention to yourself. True. And that's exactly what we did. And, and it was all us. That wasn't the label. We did that mm. ourselves. Do you have you ever had any regrets about that? I mean, you know, the no. the album cover no. is no. pink and light blue and no 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 for, for exactly for that reason that was all planned out too mm-hmm. if you look at a cd in a collection of cds mm-hmm. you're going to spot the nelson after the rain record from 100 yards away that's so funny that's i did that exact thing today yes yep yeah yep. Yep. just from the spine that was yeah. that wasn't unplanned we did that on purpose that's great you know that's again great. where people were going left we went right yeah we didn't want to fit in that was mm-hmm. never goal. our goal was never being good enough to fit in with the herd. We wanted yeah. to establish our own thing. And, you know, again, love us or hate us, everybody knew who we were. Just mm-hmm. as many boyfriends were hating on us as their girlfriends were hanging posters of us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's actually okay. And I, I think that the branding us as hair metal, you know, we were always a, we were always just a hard pop band. That's yeah. all we ever really wanted to be. But the, way, uh, the, the easy way for the record company to market us at the time was give a bunch of free photos to Jerry Miller at Metal Edge magazine. And so instantly we're going to be put right next to the Warrants and the Wingers and the Slaughters and the Poisons and all that kind of stuff because that's mm-hmm. that was basically kind of like the street trade magazine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we never did it. We were going to record. We had never done a single interview ever for a teen magazine. Oh, in our interesting. Lives. Yeah, good. We have never we we never did. So what those photographers did, they they made a fortune selling the pictures they took of us without our permission to all of those teen magazines. Mm, you know, all the, yeah. all the, all the beat magazines. Teen so beat, you didn't Tiger play the game, but the photographers sort of inserted you in there anyway. They did. And also think about it. It was a freeway mm-hmm. for the record company to market us. Yeah. That was all free. That was all free publicity and free advertising. So, you know, a lot of the calls that were made, you know, in hindsight, uh, you know, as far as like the, the imaging and the positioning and all that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, it's all arguable. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but mm-hmm. you know, it's just like being ripped off by you know every person that made millions of dollars off of us. I'm not bitter about it at all because you know I, I'm very cognizant of this. Let's say somebody walks up to you before you start your career and they go, "Okay, this is going to take thirty years of your life." 
<laughs> it's going to cost you every relationship you have. Hmm. You're going to personally spend $4 million paying for it. You're going to lose not one, not two, but three inheritances Ugh. paying for sour deals that your advisors who you had hired at the time did behind your back to keep your good name and to keep yourself out of bankruptcy. But you're going to be in the Guinness Book of World Records as the only family in history with three generations of number one hit makers. You're going to write your own number one song, which no one in your family has ever done. Mm -hmm. People are going to know you far and wide all over the world as the two guys with the long blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And all it's going to do is cost you 30 years of your life millions of dollars and your inheritances would you do it fuck yeah <laughs> absolutely fuck yeah. yeah where do i sign up yeah you know absolutely yeah absolutely you know because i mean that's an outrageous choice yeah to make and and i'm saying that it was an incredibly hard to do because it yeah. was yeah and all of those things i just mentioned we had to go through yeah but you know there are people who actually had their lives affected by a song like After the Rain that has a, has a line in it, Don't Be Afraid to Lose What Was Never Meant to Be. Mm-hmm. And maybe they heard that one line at a time in their life that they really needed to hear that. And I've got proof in the letters that were written to me over the I years. I believe it. You know, yep. I, didn't, I, didn't plan, I didn't plan it that way, but man, that was a really happy accident. And if, you know, affecting, you know, and, and you know, even in some cases, saving a single life was worth all of that to, to make happen. Yeah. And to have people after the fact go, you look at the ridiculous shit they used to wear. <laughs> Fuck you. It was totally worth it. Absolutely it was worth it. Every step of the way. Good. I'm going to read you a, uh, a message I got from one of our listeners who's a huge fan of yours uh, relating to kind of what you just said. Real quick, before we get into more of the background of the album, I do, I, um, I'm i sure you've heard this. I, my, I have a theory that the reason why Nelson doesn't get the credit it deserves is probably because you two are just too pretty. And I think about... <laughs> I think about Kip Winger, who, like, Madeleine is one of the greatest pop rock singles of all time. But because he's good looking and he, the guys who listen to hard rock of the 80s want to believe that, you know, they're beer drinking, football playing, gun toting dudes or whatever. They don't want to see pretty guys. That makes them feel uncomfortable. I'm not, I don't know how much I'm supposed to like this song if the guys who sing it are better looking well, than Well, I mean, my, my wife explains this. To, to me, she goes, you know, when, when I had you hanging on my wall, my boyfriend hated the fact that I had your poster on my wall. Right. You know, he and all of his friends were going, you know, yeah, oh, Nelson, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Judas Priest. Yeah. And and so there's an irony in that, which I find funny. But, you know, it, it's right. like <laughs> right. it, it, it is what it is. I think a better example for that wouldn't be Kiplinger. It would be Ricky Nelson. Uh, Look at my okay. father. Yeah, true. My father's my my father sold half a billion singles. Oh my gosh! With a B. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, uh, you know, this is the only guy other than Elvis to have had a number one rock album in the fifties. Mm. Only two guys, Elvis and Ricky. Crazy. Yet my father never got a single Grammy. Not That's even wild. a lifetime achievement. Now think about that. Yeah. But you know, John Fogerty put it very well. He said, you know, for critics to admit that Ricky Nelson actually had the talent he had would be like, you know, your common person having to admit that the prom queen actually had a brain. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very hard for people to do. It, it really is. And, you know, that's okay. I mean, that's totally fine. I, I might, mm-hmm. our, I'm sure our father wouldn't have 
changed anything he had done. You know, he, he got to the point where it's like he put a Stone Canyon band together and created country rock. And he did that because people com- considered him completely over. Right. And so there was some freedom in being discounted by people at that time. And it's the same freedom Matthew and I are feeling right now with our new project, Firstborn Sons, which is great American country rock. We, we really don't care. People can consider, you know, uh, the, you know, our best is behind us. And we've made mm-hmm. a classic record with our first record. And that's really well and good. And, and there are a lot of people that spend the rest of their lives kind of mining those memories and playing the fair circuit. There's no mm-hmm. dishonor in that. That's totally no. cool. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Matt and I feel like you know, we're not done saying things. We've got, we've got new stuff to say all the time, and we're still working hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just kind of hope that, uh, you know, in time people catch on to that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we are. I mean, the, the After the Rain record's got, you know, respect now that it never had at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, time. because people actually listen to it with fresh ears and, and they go, you know, a lot of that 80s stuff was really cool. Yeah. And uh, there are certain albums that got discounted unfairly because it was far more comfortable for, for people to not look past the, uh, you know, the, the spandex and the leggings and the, the chaps and all that kind of stuff and the long hair to the music that was underneath it. Yeah. And not realize they'd been rope-a-doped into the whole thing. The whole thing was planned. Right. Right. I, it's uh, marketing, man. It, was just it marketing. is. It is. I want to I want to pinpoint your diversity for anyone who doesn't know, because here we're talking about one of the great, quote unquote, hair metal albums of all time. I know that you and Matthew also, when you go out and do shows, you do Christmas shows. You do this country project that you just talked about. You do your like Nelson, Ricky Nelson jukebox kind of shows. There's at least four different I mean, I think I have this right, don't I? There's at least four different genres that you guys go out on a regular basis and nail for live audiences who will come and see you. Am, am I right well, there? Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah, you are right. We, we've actually been playing country music legitimately for about 20 times longer than we ever played arena rock. True. That's, that is correct. Yeah. And that, yeah. that, actually, that actually happened organically. Um, what happened was we wanted to make our, our own mark with our own music, which we were blessed enough to get to do. And about 15 years, you know, after After the Rain dropped and we did all of our tours and stuff with Nelson, we just got an approach by so many people that missed our father that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they said, well, you know, why don't you put a couple of his songs into your set? And we just thought that he deserved more respect than that. He deserved his own thing. So, you know, we, we actually got challenged by uh, by the military to play at a, a base over in Yokosuka, Japan, for Thanksgiving one year for a bunch of sailors who actually couldn't get back home for mm-hmm. the holiday. And the bass commander was a big Ricky Nelson fan. And, uh, you know, we were hesitant because we said we've never done this before and we didn't want to disrespect our dad or anything like that. But, um, you know, we just decided to do it because we'll do anything for the military. And and apparently what was really cool is that, I mean, there were all these kids out there, 18, 19-year-old kids who didn't know who we were, let alone our father, but they Mm -hmm. just loved the music so much. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the cool thing was I, I realized actually after the fact, after being a guitar player for Nelson, that... You know, there is a reason why people like Jimmy Page and Brian May and Tony Iommi cite Ricky Nelson and James Burton on those early records as like their primary influence. Mm-hmm. You know, the the playing was really that good. Yeah, it was. And so, yeah. in putting that show together, I had to I, I basically had to go back to the drawing board as a guitar player and had to relearn how to play real guitar from James Burton. No way. And that's what I did. You know, you. I just really studied and, you know, got some tips from James and did that whole thing and learned, how, how, you know, basically what so many Sentinel players that I loved, you know, had learned first. And, you know, there was a newfound respect for that. But, you know, it's important to note that, you know, we sold millions of records to kids who had no idea who Ricky Nelson was. Good point. Yeah. 
so that was that was never that was never you know kind of part of our plan. The only people who seemed to be impressed at the time were the the much older uh, uh, press members who were trying to, to be lazy and take an easy angle at a story. And we just had to just let them know. It's just you know just like you know our grandfather and grandmother when they had their big band and they had their number ones. You know they did something mm-hmm. that was specific for their era in 1935. You know our dad in 60 what was it. Uh, Gosh, it was 59 and 62 had his number ones, and that was music that was very specific and appropriate for its time. And, you know, same thing that we did our first go-round with Nelson, but Nelson, to me, something I'll always be proud of, but it was really kind of like, it was my first foray into things, and Nelson was the band I always wanted before I knew what I wanted in a Oh, good point. Yeah, good point. Well said. I get it. Yep. Okay, let's get into some of the history here. It was released on June 22nd, or June 26th, 1990 it peaked at number 17 it was on the chart for 64 weeks now at the time it was certified double platinum but you hinted earlier has it since sold 10 million copies yeah they do they look at like the record club and all that stuff remember this is before sound scan yeah long long time before sound scan so you know if you look at uh you know all the the reports coming back from all the territories through all years and we're knocking on what is it 30 years now yeah um, they're they're estimating the real sales, both you know, legitimate and illegitimate, around ten million. Okay, amazing. Yep. Good for you, man. Yep. Cer- cer- certified by the RAA is like like two and a half or two point seven, something like that. But again, like I said, you know, these were all the uh, the the record clubs and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff that weren't accounted for. Yeah. So um, the bottom line was there was a two year period of time where you'd be hard pressed to uh, escape MTV or the the radio without hearing an so Elvis song every hour. So true. Okay, it was recorded at Cherokee Studios, uh, Studio B, I believe. I'm always curious, who else was at the studio at the time you were recording this album? Gosh, I'm trying to think who else was recording at the time. Let me think here. I, I do know who was answering the phones at the time when we were actually uh-huh. checking into the studio, which was pretty interesting. Turned out to be Joel Hoekstra. Oh, really? The guitar player in Whitesnake. Yeah. <laughs> that was the guy... He was answering the phones at the time. No way. Um, yeah, I mean, what, he's like truly one of my favorite people and one of my favorite players. Yeah. You know, he's played with Nelson a couple of times, and he's just like my favorite guitar player. He's, he's so, so great. Good. So, so good. But that, there's the irony. He was always a... a no a, way. The nice, the nice guy answering the phones at Cherokee when we would come, come in uh, the studio to make that record. You know, I think at the time, I don't believe that there was anybody big that was working at that studio at that time. The, the Robs, who actually own that studio... I, what I loved about them is that they always took chances on bands that, you know, really you would think uh, from the outside would have no chance of ever uh-huh. making it and uh-huh. uh, and stuff. And especially during the grunge era, those guys were awesome. I mean, they called me in to, to do the background vocals on It's a Shame About Ray for the Lemonheads. Really? And, and uh, yeah. No and, uh, way. That's me, wow. That's me singing on that record, which is cool. And yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I would never get a chance to meet Evan Dando unless Bruce Robb called me down there and said, yeah. the background vocals. And, and that was really cool. But, you know, my father used to actually record with the Robs down at Cherokee. As a matter of fact, yeah. they had uh, the Neumann microphone. And their, their mic locker was famous down there. They, they had mm. equipment going back to the beginning of rock and roll. And those guys really, they, they started Cherokee. Cherokee was Cherokee Ranch. And it was... Uh, it was out in kind of the high desert outside mm. of Los Angeles. That's where it started, and then it moved to where it uh, wound up being until it closed down. And that was uh, right off of Melrose Boulevard, um, La Cienega down there. And so many incredible 
rock records were made at that studio. It was a great rock and roll studio. They had a particular kind of console there in all of their rooms uh, called the Cherokee Trident. It started out as a Trident A-Range from London, and they only made 13 of those desks in history. And the ones that wound up at Cherokee were modified so heavily over the years by their in-house technicians that they became their own kind of console. So the Cherokee Trident was legendary. But you could hear that on every Cars record ever made. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay, so it had a very particular sound. Okay. Uh, Maggie May was made through, mm. the Cherokee, through Cherokee. So, for example, they had a couple of microphones, and one microphone in particular was called the Maggie May, and that's the really? one that they would break out whenever they would have a singer. It was a vintage Neumann microphone, an M49, that they would break out anytime they had a singer that moved around a lot. When, when they sang. So Rod Stewart was one of those guys. Uh-huh. Okay, So they'd bring out this, this Neumann because it was broken in a very interesting way. They didn't know what, what had happened to it, but the proximity effect was completely gone on this mic. No way. So if a person was moving around or if they were a foot back from the mic, it sounded exactly the same as if their lips were right on top of the microphone. Whoa. So they, they would use that for very kinetic singers. And uh, apparently they used that not only for Rod Stewart, but when my dad came in to record, they happened to use that microphone for him to record Garden Party. Oh, so he hit big hit. Really? And, uh, and I always told them, yeah, and I always told them, I said, boys, you know, when, you know, I know you you always acquire, you never sell. Okay, I get because that was their thing. They always would pick up, you know, great vintage equipment and stuff like that. And, uh-huh. and I said, but, God forbid you're ever in a, in a, in a scenario where you ever want to sell any of your stuff, you call me uh-huh. uh, if you ever consider selling that one microphone. Which Amazing. I now currently have. You do? So oh, got, good for you, I man. Have, I, yes. I have, I have, I have the Maggie May Rick Nelson Garden Party microphone, and that's what we do all our vocals on now. That's great. Oh, what a great story! I love that. Good one. <laughs> okay, uh, track one. Obviously, can't live without your love. mentioned the uh, 12 string before who played that uh that was brother matthew and was actually it? amazing yeah it was brother matt and it technically is not a 12 string okay it's a good little side story it's not it's two six string guitars matthew yeah. actually plays the primary i play the secondary and we learned this trick from fred wallachie of westwood music who actually was really good friends with the guys in the eagles and crosby stills and nash and joni mitchell 
Westwood Music is the place where all the acoustic guys would go from throughout the 60s. And um, he taught me about Nashville tuning and, and alternate tunings and all that stuff and, and said, you know, one of the secrets that the Eagles used when they did, let's say, Hotel California is they would take one low-strung acoustic guitar and one high-strung acoustic guitar. And then they'd be able to pan those two guitars slightly in the sound field rather than if you had if you had 12-string, it would just basically be, you know, in, in one place. You could actually put the two guitars in two different places uh, and make it sound bigger. Yeah. And so that's that's what we did. That's why when, you know, people are playing, I mean, Matthew actually plays that on a high string, capoed up five positions played in, in the G hand position. I play mine, uh, capoed up two, played in the D position on a low string guitar. Hmm. That's why, you know, if you ever try to play that song, it, it sounds close on the guitar, but, but not quite right. Never You don't quite know there. what's exactly wrong with it. Yeah. That's why. Okay. Okay. I was going to mention this later, but it's coming up now. I think I read somewhere, and it honestly may have been on Wikipedia, I don't remember, that one of the issues with this album was that you didn't know how to play guitar. And so you were saying something to the effect of, let me just take a year and work on it all day, every day, and I'll be ready. So I was kind of surprised to hear that you were one of the people playing this. I assumed you didn't really know how to play guitar at that time. Well, no, I actually, um, when we started writing for Nelson, we had a band that uh, that we had worked our way through the L.A. clubs from the time we were 12 years old. Uh, it was a band called The Nelson with a duh. Okay. okay. Started out as the Strange Agents back in the punk days, morphed into The Nelsons, okay? And you know, we were actually doing pretty well. We were build, building our, our reputation up in the L.A. club scene. Um, up until the time we were 18, mm-hmm. we just graduated high school. And uh, and we we went through that entire summer gigging and doing the whole thing and building our brand. We had a lot of record companies that were interested in us. And uh, then our father died on New Year's Eve, and we were all living with him and stuff, and that was a real blow. And um, at, at the time, we had one more gig on the books that we had to do, and we had to do it because we had a manager at the time that uh, sometime in November, about a month before our dad died, he got us the opportunity as being the musical guests on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. We were actually still hold the record. We were the only unsigned band in history mm-hmm. to ever perform as the musical guests on SNL. Nice. which was the big show at the time yeah long before mtv and stuff so we uh we we went to new york we played the show and uh you can find the footage of it but i'm the drummer oh I'm the guitar player. Huh. matthew matthew was the lead singer i was playing drums we had you know pumped up hair and the whole thing and mm-hmm. and we were kids man we were just 18 a couple of terrified kids and stuff with our basically our high school club band playing mm-hmm. that we were on the plane home uh, from New York, and I'd fallen asleep, and I'd have a I'd had a dream, um, and I and I went over to Matthew's row, and I I said, look, I got to share this with you, and uh, he said, well, what's up? I go, well, I want to retool everything because I just had a dream that in order for for us to be successful and be as big as I think we can be, I'm going to have to go up front, and I'm going to have to you know it's going to be the two of us singing together, yeah, and doing this together up front. Yeah. And he said, but there's there's a problem with that. Um, you're a drummer. And I said, I know, <laughs> I know. He goes, but Gunn, you don't play guitar at all. You've never had a guitar in your hand, like ever. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I was thinking about that, Matt. I figured that everybody that says they've been playing guitar for 10 years, if they're lucky, has had that instrument in their hand an hour a day. That's mm-hmm. if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. All right. What if I spend an entire year doing nothing but playing guitar 10 hours a day, mm-hmm. every single day. It stands to reason that I'll have the same experience in the same shops, 
as someone who's been saying that they've been playing for 10 years. It's all about the 10,000 hours, right? You're, right. you're going to get yours well, in quickly. Yeah, he, he knows that I'm an, I'm an intense person. So mm -hmm. to his credit, he supported me on that. I mean, he said, look, this is really a, ch a, a, a really potentially stupid thing to do because you know, we just played SNL. Things are actually on the way up right now. Yeah. And I said, look, for a lot of reasons, you know, I'm still processing, you know, Pop's death and all that stuff. I, I think I think we need this. You know, and during that year, not, not only did I play guitar, but we went back to the drawing board and really, like, started co-writing with some great writers and, mm -hmm. and really honing the skills of being songwriters. And so when it came time to do the demos for and, uh, and the, the final record for After the Rain, uh, that that's me playing, you know, everything except the solos. Incredible. So, um I mean, except for only time will tell. That was my first solo. But, okay. Um, but the rest is the rest is all Brett Garson, who's still to this day truly one of the best guitar players on planet Earth. Um, Amazing. But that was basically that was basically how it happened. Good for you. Well, the song hits number one. It features Judy Aronson in the video, who's a lifetime crush of mine for sure. Mine too. Why do you think she was in the video? <laughs> I had Matthew on here. A couple years ago, when the when the vinyl, the remastered vinyl of After the Rain came out, came out, and right. I asked him yeah, if yeah, either of you guys dated her, and I I don't think you did. No, we, we didn't. She was too smart for us. Uh, it wasn't for lack of trying, man. I believe it. It wasn't for lack of trying, but but she 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 wasn't responding to our illness. That's too bad. That's too bad. Her loss. Um, okay. Yep. So I, as I mentioned, I reached out to one of our listeners who's also been on the show and is a, you know, a raconteur of her own. His name Jackie Clary. She's a huge fan of yours. And I asked her to throw me some things that she had always wanted to know about you. And one of the things was relating to the Love and Affection video, whose idea was it to sort of frame the video with the model and the magazine coming to life and those kinds of things. Wow. Um, well, we were really lucky on that particular video. We had met these two guys named Jim Yukich and Paul Flaherty, and those guys had just gotten done doing all the Phil Collins videos. Oh. And what we loved about the Phil Collins videos of the era is they always had a sense of humor yeah. about them. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, even the Genesis videos with mm -hmm. the puppets that would, they were great, mm -hmm. or the Phil Collins video where at the end the guy goes, "Great, great sandwich." <laughs> you know, they they were those guys who made those videos, right. and and we. You know, we thought, okay, we're going to have to do something that's really colorful and irreverent and eye-catching, and they were the right guys. They totally got it. Good. They totally figured that whole thing out. And so, you know, I, I really have to give Paul and Jim the credit for putting that first video together. Cool. That was, it wasn't the case with After the Rain. The After the Rain video was all ours, but Love and Affection was really Jim and Paul. Okay. Okay, and it was not entirely inspired by Cindy Crawford, but there was something about, I read a story where you two, you and Matt were in a hotel and his door was open and he's kind of zoning out, looking at a picture of Cindy Crawford and writing riffs on his guitar, and you come in and say, what is that? Something like this, is that right? Well, no, what really happened is we were writing songs. Uh, you know, it, it's very difficult for, for Matt to focus in the studio. Just in general, uh, okay. you know, he, he's a very kinetic guy. He is as ADD as I am OCD. Mm -hmm. That's why mm -hmm. we work. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm really a studio guy. So, you know, it was the summer uh, before we actually finalized our record deal with Geffen. And uh, we were at our house and uh, like all of our friends were down at the beach and having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, Matthew was like really kind of pissy because he'd rather be down there with them. 
And you know, I was like, "Come on, man, we we got to do this. We got to we got we got to focus in on this. If you want to do this, we need great songs." And so I went to the kitchen to make myself a sandwich, and I and I was coming back to uh, to our bedroom where we were writing, and I, I heard the sound of a, a really cool song or the beginnings of a really cool song floating down the hallway. And I was smart enough to not interrupt Matt because I, I had a micro cassette recorder, which was the ultimate in technology at the time, by the way. Right. Kind of my, 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 my little dictation machine, my little memo uh-huh. machine in my pocket, and I just hit record on that sucker. And, uh, you know, before he knew I was standing there, you know, outside of the doorway and stuff, I just recorded him with what he was playing. Mm. And I, I, did, I let that happen for about a minute, and then I walked into the room, and he was kind of zoned out with his acoustic guitar on his lap, and you know he was playing random things, and, and he was kind of looking at a, a Cindy Crawford article, mm. and he kind of broke out of his little trance, and and uh, I said, "What was that you were playing?" He goes, "What was what?" Mm. I said, "You don't remember?" He goes, "No, I don't really know. I was just kind of noodling around." And I said, "Well, I got it on tape, and I played it for him, and fortunately, that was the beginning of love and affection." Very That's nice. that first riff. That's great. So good. Right on. Okay, track two, I Can Hardly Wait. This might be my favorite song on the record. I might say that a couple more times. I Can too. Hardly Wait. Yes. Yes. Yeah. kicks off with that fantastic guitar lick and the finger snaps and i'm a big believer in songs having these unique sprinkles of pixie dust that make them stand out and to me things like finger snaps are one of the or is an ingredient that does that where did whose idea is finger snaps you know finger snaps was probably tanner our co-producer okay that was probably his idea the intro guitar riff that was really kind of my doing. I had gotten nice. my hands on a pretty interesting guitar at the time, and it was uh, made by a company called Steinberger. Mm. And they made these little, these weird-looking guitars that looked like cricket bats. They were headless guitars. Whoa. And uh, what made these unique, two things uh, made these unique. One, they were made completely out of carbon fiber, which no guitars were made out of uh-huh. at, at that time. And they also had a unit on it called a trans trim. 
which you could hear on, on, on this one uh, Van Halen record in particular, what the trans trem did, unlike other tremolo bars, when you actually raised or lowered the bar on this, all of the strings remained in pitch with each other. Mm. It was calibrated in a very particular way. And you could actually lock this thing to higher or lower tunings instantly. So the beginning of I Can Hardly Wait is that trans trem on that Steinberger rocked up to where it's really high in pitch. Mm. And, uh, you know, normally people would do that on a capo, but not on that one. But it gave it a really interesting and unique sound. Mm. So that that's why that song, the beginning Got of that it. song sounds, you know, so interesting. It's kind of done on a, on a very particular special guitar, you know, just kind of kind of messing around and, and yeah. all that stuff. But, you know, like, you know, I, I will say that our co-producer, Mark Tanner, you know, he was a, a guy that you know, had really not had any success as a producer at the time, but he was the guy that we did a lot of our co-writing with on the yeah. record when we needed a co-writer. And, you know, he's the guy that, that, you know, kind of believed in the two of us when no one else did. So we, we fought for him when no one believed in him and mm -hmm. gave him his first, you know, production job. And, you know, we, we, at the time, you know, I was under the illusion that we were the three musketeers and we we're all really good friends and, and believed in each other and stuff, and it was really cool. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad for that time. That was okay. pretty cool. But, uh, yeah. I was going to ask fine. about that because I didn't know a lot about Mark, and I looked him up, and uh, he produced a year or two after this an Eddie Money album that I actually really like called Right Here. But that's about it. Uh -huh. I mean, that's a your album and that he album were the other, only two that I knew of. Well, you did, know what I mean? That like He did a couple of other things. He did uh, the single Hey Santa for Kanye and Wendy. Oh, that was his, and he also did that song by the band The Calling. It was their, their oh, one single. yeah. Big hit. I, and I, if can... I could, yes, I would. You know, yes. wherever you will go. Yes. Now, um, yep, I'm humming yeah, it. I can't remember the name, but yeah. I know way up high, way yeah. down low. Right. Yeah. Um, wherever you will go. Um, you know, there's a moment at the very end, but it's just totally a Nelson moment. Yeah, song. it is. If right. I could turn on that it's riding out on, it sounds like a nonsense song, but yeah, you know, Mark, Mark is an interesting guy. Okay. You know, uh, he's kind of dropped off the face of the earth. You can't really find him now. Yeah, um, I noticed that. I, I mean, I heard rumors that he got into like, you know, TV and film music and all that stuff, and that's just in you know, a very particular world. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that was, you know, they always say reason, season, or a lifetime. <laughs> and uh, I think Mark came into uh, to our lives for a reason, mm. but it wasn't an enduring friendship because I don't think it was all that authentic. I think uh, you know he, in hindsight, he represented himself as a real friend and a believer. And it's just I think that you know he was just taking advantage of an opportunity, and that's okay because you know we all got something out of it. It's just I you know I I missed the illusion of the friendship I thought was really there. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Okay, there's one other. Remember we. Remember, we were kids at the time. Yeah, no, I understand. And you're new yeah. to all, I mean, you're not new to all this thanks to your dad and show business and all that kind of stuff, but this is your first chance. And yeah. And if he if he's portrays himself as a friend and a confidant and a partner and then it doesn't work out, that's that's got to burn, you know? Yeah, it, it does on the one hand. On the other hand, it's okay, you know, because you, you, can't, you can't really take any responsibility for someone else you know, for their decisions or actions, um, you know, he's missing out on, on some good friends, but yeah. you know, uh, you know, it, it worked for us too. In hindsight, I will say that, you know, it takes a special person, whether or not they're, they've got a, a really good potential payoff or nothing else happening in their lives that would enable them to do this. But 
I mean, we spent every day together putting that thing together for over a year. Yeah. You know, yeah. every single day writing and dreaming and talking and lunches and, and all. I mean, a lot of time yeah. was put in to, to that, uh, that partnership. And it, it worked. And that's really, really great. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful for, like I said, mm-hmm. reason, season, or a lifetime. That was a reason. Yeah. And I'll always be grateful uh, yeah. to him for that. It worked out. Uh, Okay, track three, After the Rain, this reached number six, is the second single. This is uh, one other thing that Jackie wanted to know. If you guys still have your American flag jackets from the American Music Awards. Absolutely. Well, gosh, I'm so glad she noticed that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that actually was, that, that jacket's really special to me. Um, really? Desert Shield had just become Desert Storm. Oh, yeah. And back then, politically speaking, no one, I mean, I mean, no one was mm-hmm. sticking up for our troops. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a Vogue thing to do at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was the first skirmish we'd gotten into the, of substance since Vietnam. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, that, that they felt supported. We had just done something called Voices That Care, where we yeah, sent a bunch of our singles you know, overseas and stuff. And, you know, it was the first time Matthew and I were presenters on the American Music Awards. We actually presented Garth Brooks with his very first American Music Award ever. Really? <laughs> I mean, no, no one knew, yeah, no one, no one knew who Garth was. Yeah. And that we were going to be presenters on that so i had um, our stylist Deanna stell um we designed a, a jacket specifically for the occasion and it mm-hmm. was a floor-length sequined american flag coat yeah and it i have to say it was staggering you know, walking out on that stage uh at the shrine auditorium and uh i mean it was it was really eye-catching and uh the first thing i said was hey you know, th- you know thanks for having us just before we begin just want to Send our love out to our brothers and sisters who are overseas, not knowing if they're going to come home safe and sound. Just let you know that we all love you and we support you, and we're here waiting for you, and hope you get home safe. 
And then the place went down. And then, of course, every presenter from that point on in the night was like, oh, hello, yeah. the troops. Yeah. But um, that particular jacket I'm very proud of for the statement it made. Good. It also wound up in a display. You can tell Jackie it wound up in a display at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the Teen Idols exhibit that they had for two years there. Really? And I was right and I was right where I always wanted to be, which is sandwiched right between Britney Spears and the Spice Girls. You know what? So, a little insight into Jackie. She used to work for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And before that, she worked for oh, MTV. And I wonder if she... Ah. That might be one of the... Re I mean, she pro I'm sure she saw you on TV, but I wonder if she was there or had a hand in this. I'm going to have to ask her well, after we're might, done. Well, she might have. And if you actually unlock the secret, I want to thank her on behalf of, of me. Just I will. I say thank you, okay? Okay, I will. Yeah, she might have had a hand in that coat being in that display, to be honest. Okay, wow. one thing I'm, I'm curious about, too, is, um, you know, this being the second single, who were you uh, guys just as, who's picking the singles and the order of the singles and all that? Were you guys involved in those conversations? Well, yeah, we were always, like, highly involved in everything that we did. Yeah. Um, the funny thing was, I think Matthew was pushing really hard for uh, bits and pieces to be the first mm. single. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's what he wanted. He wanted that, and he thought the bits and pieces were going to be the first single. I think part of that has to do with the fact that Love and Affection actually initially wound up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, you know, we wrote that. that song and we had a lot of a lot of hope for that song. And it just when we went to Cherokee to record it uh, for real, because at the time, you know, basically things are different now because there's no such thing as a demo. It's basically a master in progress now that you can have tools at home. But back then, you know, the height of technology was a little Fostex four tracker cassette recorder, which mm -hmm. sounded like shit. So, you know, it definitely wasn't ready for radio. And so you'd have to make your demos and then go back into the real studio like a Cherokee and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to record it for real. And so somewhere in the translation between the demo that we were excited about, about Love and Affection, and the final supposed recording of that song that we attempted at Cherokee, they just, there wasn't the same magic, man. Mm -hmm. It just, it just, it wasn't as good as the demo and the demo was not good enough to broadcast. So interesting. We were kind of between a rock and a hard place, and we, we thought uh, initially we were very frustrated. The record company wanted to move on, and Matt and I were like, eh, you know, we, we really do believe in this song, and we want to fight for it. Um, our management at the time also managed another uh, mixer, an engineer, mixer, producer guy named David Holman. Hmm. And David's background was, was, believe it or not, working on the physical record for Olivia Newton-John. He hadn't really done much of anything else other than that. Hmm. And he had a studio up in the Hollywood Hills, so we took that one song, up to David, and we said, look, we, we believe in the song, but the recording, we, we didn't get it. And so we wound up re-recording basically 80% of everything we'd done at Cherokee in his studio. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then he wound up mixing it, and, and he mixed it with a different set of ears. His whole thing was like, look, this is going to go on CHR Top 40 Pop Radio, okay? So you've got to think about who your com competitors are going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the pud rock that's on rock radio, okay? You've got a lot of a leeway that they give you when you're on, on rock radio because, you know, it can sound quaint and it can sound old and it can sound muddy and it can sound all, as long as the vibe is kind of there, they, mm -hmm. they give you a hall pass. Pop music is different. He said, you know, you got to think about what your competitors are going to be on that. It's got to snap. It's got to jump out of the speakers. It's got to be ear catching, you know, when you mm -hmm. hear it. And the competition there is really fierce as far as like ear candy is concerned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he mixed love and affection differently than somebody who would mix like a, uh, you know, a hair metal record. 
Yeah. You know, he approached that record as a as a top forty CHR, you know, pop rock hit. Right. And it and it was his sensibilities that really like really resuscitated that song. And then when we got done, you know, re-recording it and remixing it with with Holman, it was really apparent that that was going to be the first single okay. because sonically speaking, you know, it sounded so much you know more advanced and more modern yeah. than than the other stuff that we had done. So the mix for Love and Affection. That is definitely Holman's. He went on to do uh, the No Doubt Tragic Kingdom record. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep, and yeah. Bush and all yeah. that stuff. And, and when you hear, like, when you heard Just a Girl for the first time, you kind of went, fuck, this is different. Yeah, exactly. You know? I remember and from it well. the very mm -hmm. From the very first licks of the PPG, you know, of, mm -hmm. of synthesizer in the beginning, it was like, I've never heard anything like this before. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, stuff that he's done very, very well in his Amazing. career. Um, you know, After the Rain... That's my mix. Really? I did that myself. Yeah, Whoa. that's my mix. Yeah, I did that. Very uh, nice. At that particular, you know, at that particular time, we had a we had an engineer who was given production credit, but he was just an engineer, which is I mean, he's an awesome engineer, David Thoner, mm -hmm. who had uh, worked on some Aerosmith records. You know, he was put in there because you know he, he made the record company feel better. And then, of course, Mark Tanner's first foray mm -hmm. into production was us fighting for him and, and saying, "Oh, you look, you love the demos, so why would you go with another?" producer I mean yeah. Kalander tried to do that like three times put us with different guys and it didn't mm -hmm. work out and so you know we were in there but the the night that that uh, after the rain was mixed David Thoner tragically you know his wife had some health issues and so he basically checked out he was oh. not in the studio at all he hadn't been in the studio for like a week and Mark Tanner was too busy you know bringing you know dates he picked up you know into the studio to show off the gizmos and then impress them and then <laughs> you know, take them out to dinner and stuff. So he wasn't in the studio either. So I'm just basically sitting there with a second engineer with song to mix. And, you know, I'm 19 years old. Yeah. And I'd never mixed before. But, um, you know, that one was mine. Wow. So it was pretty cool. I mean, Good for where, you. Where Love and Thank you, man. Where Love and Affection had to be remixed by Holman and more than ever also wound up getting, you know, remixed by Holman. After the Rain was mine. What a, what a major accomplishment. And then that song gets huge oh. too. You've got it. That's good yeah, for you. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. good for you. I appreciate you. that. Yeah. Okay, track four, Tracy's song, and Only Time Will Tell. This one reached number 28. Um, I believe it was the fourth single off of the album.
Now, Tracy's song, I assume we're, we're, you're referring to your sister, Tracy, who was on Square Pegs, and I have those DVDs. I love that show. Thank you. But I, uh, that song sounds like a Christmas song to me. And um, well, I wonder song, if you break that out in your Christmas shows or have revamped it or something like that. No, you no, you haven't. As a, ma- as a matter of fact, that song was basically uh, a complete ripoff of our father's song that he did when he did uh, a record called Rudy the Fifth. Hmm. The song was called Song for Kristen, and he'd written it for our mother. He'd been taking classical gut-string acoustic guitar lessons at that particular time, and uh, he was learning from Segovia's protege, and mm. it was the first original classical gut-string acoustic guitar piece he'd ever written. And again, it was called Song for Christmas for Our Mother. And we hadn't really thought about doing anything like that, but our sister at that particular time when we were in the studio doing Only Time Will Tell, and uh, we were about to record a full orchestra for Only Time Will Tell, hmm. our sister was just going into surgery. She had stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh. And she was fighting for her life. And so uh, that particular night in the studio at Cherokee, you know, we were all just kind of sitting around. And uh, the, we had uh, just a lovely band at the time, Paul Markovich mm-hmm. on keyboards, who is just a legend now. Mm-hmm. He does basically all the musical direction for, for you know, America's Got Talent and The Voice. Oh, and, I didn't and realize. Good shows. for him. Nice. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. He's been Cher's musical director forever. He's, he's a, an amazing talent. Good. And, of course, uh, you know, Bobby Rock on drums mm-hmm. and, and uh, Brett Garson on guitar. We were all sitting around, you know, having a very sober moment, talking about Tracy and praying for her. She was going, going in for surgery, like I said. And, mm-hmm. and we all just came up with the idea on the fly together mm-hmm. to uh, actually do that song for Tracy. So It's beautiful. That's a... Uh, Thank you. It's beautiful. Thank you. What's and the it, plan always to merge the two together and not leave it as its own individual track? Yeah, actually, no. We, we actually didn't realize that it was going to be such a great segue mm. into uh, into that song. But, you know, back in that day, you have to think, you know, it, it wasn't like it is right now. Albums were put together as experiences with an A-side mm. yeah. and a B-side. Yeah. Both the A-side and the B-side had to have their own specific journeys, a beginning, middle, and an end. But they all had to fit together when you flip that record over. Mm-hmm. So you had to really think about your sequencing, and you had to really think about the experience of the listener when they would put on an album. And it would have to have some moments that were, you know, not just song, pause, mm-hmm. song, pause. Mm-hmm. It's boring. Yeah. And some of our, our favorite records and stuff had these, like, these kind of non-sequiturs that would make you go... Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. a little left, but but I like that. You yeah. know, it makes it unique. And and that was kind of one of those things where, you know, it was a very emotional moment that we put that whole thing together. And then, of course, you know, adding to that, two hours later, the night session happened where uh, we had a full orchestra mm. uh, in there doing the strings on Only Time Will Tell. And, you know, I, it's emotional enough when you go out and play your first show to your audience and and people have heard your stuff on the radio and they're mouthing the words back to you for the first time yeah. they're seeing that that's yeah. a very emotional thing but i'll tell you what as a writer as a composer going into the studio and hearing real musicians like mm-hmm. an orchestra doing your music for the first time in person i cannot i, I can completely understand why orchestras have had a place in humanity for as yeah. long as they have yeah. because it is a visceral 
emotional, all-encompassing experience that just leveled me for the first time. It was a very, very heavy night at Cherokee between doing Tracy's song and doing the strings for Only Time Will Tell. And I think once that happened, because the emotions were so similar of putting both of those two, those two sessions yeah. together, that's when we first started talking about actually merging the two songs. Yeah. I've always wondered about that exact thing because you're right. So many, that seems to be a real feather in the cap or a real impactful experience for a lot of rock artists, rock songwriters or whatever is whenever they can incorporate an orchestra that it, it, I get the impression that they feel like that gives their composition an extra layer of depth that is like you were saying, more powerful than almost any other validation you can get. And so you describing that confirms a hunch that I've always had. That's really beautiful. That makes so it, much it sense. Looks, it's it's really hard to describe because I mean I can I can articulate it, I can give you the words, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things it's like how do I say this in a less beautiful way? Okay. You can watch Top Fuel Dragsters on T V and it's impressive. Uh-huh. And it's really cool. All right? Yeah. But if you've ever been on the starting line of two top fuel dragsters taking off the line and mm-hmm. you're sitting there 20 feet away and the air gets sucked out of your lungs because mm-hmm. it's being sucked into the engines oh. and the ground is rumbling and they're at 120 dB and you're going deaf. And I mean, all of a sudden you feel more alive than you've ever felt. I get it. And you have to, you have to be there to experience it. It's the same thing with being in the in the room with an orchestra for the first time you get it you understand it you totally mm-hmm. understand why this has been something that is so special mm-hmm. but I, it reminds me of like uh years later we went down to film austin city limits and there was a local arranger uh, named gary selecta who i i love i love his work and he arranged a quartet arrangement for a song that we have called just once more mm-hmm. and it was a first, we were about to film this show in a couple of hours, and these, these, this local quartet shows up. Gary hands them the sheet music. Now, Matt and I are sitting there with a couple of acoustic guitars backstage with these people in their folding chairs, and we're going to rehearse this for the first time, in, you know, basically in the dressing room. And we were amazed at the fact that they just picked up this sheet music and did such an amazing job yeah. with, with, with this music that they'd never heard before. They were equally as impressed that Matthew and I did not need sheet music in front of us. Incredible. And so it's just we're different, yeah. you know, different disciplines yeah. of, of music and stuff. But there's a mutual respect. Yeah, that's there it. That I didn't I didn't realize existed because I mean I've always looked at them. As, I mean these are people who've studied. They've gone to yeah. Juilliard. They they've earned it. They've these are real musicians. They are amazed that I can hear something by ear, and just play it. Yeah. Because yeah. those four incredibly accomplished musicians couldn't do it. So when you collide both worlds, it's like when rock musicians get together with classical musicians. That's why I think some magic can really happen, because we do speak different dialects of the same language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. That's it. Yeah, that's true. That's it. So there is this mutual admiration because you're doing, you're on the same path, but you're taking it, you're going in different directions. And that's got to be... Uh, interesting to somebody to watch. The, the destination is the same. The yeah, that's it. Is to move, is to move people that's through music. That's mm-hmm. the destination. That's what we're all going towards. We're just taking different paths to get yeah, there. That's it. Yep. Uh, okay, track five. More than ever, I think this is the third single, reach number fourteen. 
is another one of my faves. And uh, we've talked about the harmonizing that is so uh, crucial to you guys' sound. And, you know, when I listen to a song like like More Than Ever, I to me, the greatest harmonizers in history are the Everly Brothers. And Oh, I agree. And that that's amazing. A lot of that is because they were brothers. And I'm assuming mm-hmm. that there's a natural harmony that's coming from two people who are related to each other. But, I mean, there's the Everly Brothers and there's a few others, but you guys have that same magic in your voices. Well, thank you. Well, I think we have an unfair advantage because unlike the Everly's, Matthew and I actually split from the same cell. Yeah, good, you know, point. We're identi- good point. We're identical. We're identical twins. You know, I'm a lefty, good Matthew's point. a righty. They call us mirror twins. That's wow. what the phenomenon is. But yeah. we are literally two halves. Talk about freakish. We're two halves of the same person. So That's true. I will agree with you, though. I mean, clearly, that has definitely been a through line through you know sibling bands. I mean, shoot, man, the Bee Gees were a freaking human harmonica. Good point. Good point. Yeah. You know, I mean, holy God, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, those three guys sing together, and it's just, it's miraculous when, mm-hmm. when they sing. Um, mm-hmm. There have been so many family bands where, mm-hmm. you know, obviously uh, brothers and then sisters singing together. It, mm-hmm. There's a, a magical thing that can happen. I think part of it is, you know, growing up in the same household. True. They, they clearly uh, have enough time to get together and rehearse together and vibe together and have the same sort of you know, inspiration and sensibilities. But I think genetically speaking, you're absolutely right. There's something to that. You know, yeah. their their actual physical instruments are similar. Yeah, um, there must you be. You can hear it. It's pretty crazy. When you think about the recorded medium, you know, it, it actually, just by nature of what it is, it, it actually blindfolds you literally. Mm. Okay, you're limited to what you hear. Okay, you're listening to a yeah. record... You, you don't have your other your other senses are not working for you. You have no vision. You have no sense of smell, taste, no tactile mm-hmm. information at all. The only thing that you're getting is the sonic picture, and your mind and your heart is filling in all the blanks in between. And you know, it, it, to midwife that in there, if you've got like you know a couple of brothers singing together and mm-hmm. stuff, you know, every advantage that you can take sonically to help people fill in the blanks. You know where they're not allowed their sight and their other senses. Mm-hmm. Man, you take advantage of that if you're smart. Yeah, and it's just kind of an academic thing with the two of us. We just grew up singing together. It's just basically what we always did. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. I've always wanted to know who's who on the cover. You mentioned the Mirror Twins things. I got to be honest. I never can tell you two apart. So are you the Super one standing easy. up or sitting down? Super easy. It's very easy to always tell. 1990 Matthew and Gunner apart from each other. Okay. Gunner has one length hair. Matthew has bangs. Oh. Okay. So you're the one standing up on the cover. Correct. Okay. Got Correct. it. Got it. Okay. That's the little trick that I've always wondered. Okay. Uh, all right. We're going to flip it over. Uh, first song on the second side. It's just Desire.
one's harder. And um, one thing I love, though, is that there's kind of an Alex Van Halen drum intro to this song, if you ask me. It reminds me the beginning, the first like 30 seconds to a minute of this song sounds just like something you would have heard on a Van Halen record. Um, yeah, a little hot for teacher. Yeah, a little hot yeah, for teacher, of course. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. One thing I noticed on the remastered version that I've been listening to a lot is I feel like I can hear a, hear church bells in the mix somewhere. Am I crazy? Am yep. I mishearing something? No, you're, you're hearing it. Okay, yeah. You're hearing it. That's yeah, a there fun was, touch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can hear well, it. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun that you can, you can hear stuff like that in the remaster. You know, when we... You hear it, you know. You hear your record for the first time in the studio when you had your little listening party and stuff, and you hear it at Cherokee over the big speakers, the ego speakers, the ones, the Augsburgers that are thirty thousand dollars, right? <laughs> and you hear everything the way you recorded, and you're so excited. And then, of course, this is 1989 when the record was made, so we're at 1989 technology back then, and they have to do everything that they have to do, taking it from full fidelity analog because we didn't have digital at the time. <laughs> And they dither the whole thing down to the ultimate technology at that time is 16-bit, 44.1 CD quality, all right? Mm -hmm. What they don't tell you is that that basically takes a third of the sonic information and throws mm -hmm. it away. Mm -hmm. Now, basically what the computers are doing at that time when they're making it, you know, in that day safe for the CD is it, it has an algorithm that says it throws out the, quote, least significant bits. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that, that scene in Amadeus to me, where the king comes in and says, there are too many notes. <laughs> you, need, you just need less notes. And he goes, well, which notes would you like me to remove, sire? It's <laughs> great. Like, it, it kind of feels yeah. that way. So, yeah, you know, you hear it back for the first time on CD, and you're all excited at the time yeah. to hear it. And then you go, well, that doesn't sound anything like it sounded at Cherokee. What right, the fuck? Right, you know? Right. And, and, and it wasn't until all these years later. Yeah. And it's glaring up until that point where, you know, I hear like a Nelson song come on Hair Nation or something like that. And it sounds tiny mm -hmm. compared to everything else. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because in the years, uh, you know, since those guys made their records, at some point they had record companies that actually supported them. And they went back and remastered everything. So. Fortunately, a couple of years later, or a couple of years ago, Matthew got a chance to do that at Capitol Studios and, uh, and got to do that. And for the first time, it comes close to hearing yeah. what we have always heard of what we heard with the two inch tape mm -hmm. through the big speakers at Cherokee. It's the first time we got to hear the bass in the bass guitar and the thump in the kick drum and the, the, the tubular mm -hmm. bells. And I can hardly wait. Yeah, you know, or yeah. uh, in just the desire. In just yeah. the desire. Yeah, I had never yeah. heard, been able to hear those bells on my CD, but I could hear them on the remi the remastered version that I was listening to on Spotify to get ready to talk to. And um, yeah, they're all over the, the solo section. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, also, this song has one of my favorite lines of any lyrics of any song of yours from this uh, album, and it's, "Could you be my destiny or something I'll regret?" And I just think uh -huh. that sums up. The uh, the choices that single guys make in the, in their nineteen year when they're nineteen twenty you know that period of life, boy does that in the, sum at up the wise the, old age 
age of 19 yes. years old. <laughs> yes. But that's it. I mean, how many of us, when we were single, asked ourselves those, that exact question, but not summed up as beautifully as you guys did? Could you be my well, destiny or something much. I'll for, regret? And fortunately, we, we didn't know the answer at the time, because yeah. if we knew the answer, we would never even attempt to be in a relationship. <laughs> right. But, you know, hey, right. every man's got to have a dream. It's like, that's man, right. there's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that line. It's so true. Um, Okay, track seven, fill you up. This one, the, the guitars on this at the beginning especially remind me of something that ZZ Top would have been doing at the time. They sound oh, like those kind of... thank you. I love ZZ Top. Me too. Me too. And they were, of course, on fire. But they're taking their kind of blues influences and putting them through like robots, you know, or machines and, and uh, digitizing and making it sound very modern. And that's what the opening riffs of this song remind me of is something that ZZ Top would have done at the time. Well, thank you. That was actually the song that started the live show when Nelson went on tour. Oh. That was the first song that we played. So we had our intro music. The whole place was dark, and the lights would come on, and yeah. the guys would one at a time walk on stage, and the girls were going crazy. And mm. the first song that we played was that song. Perfect. Perfect. And, uh, and you know, just kind of pump everybody up and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Obviously, the sexual double entendre and the lyrics, which, mm-hmm. believe it or not, Funny enough, in saying this, I'm going to be honest with you. I never, I never really intended it to be a song about fucking. I mean, I really didn't. You know, uh, I'm just so naive. But uh, you know, I guess it's got a double meaning, which is fine. I, I just, I never wanted it to be so sophomoric. To be <laughs> so when you wrote that, it, that honestly, du- that wasn't obvious to you. You didn't plan that. Actually, it wasn't my intention. I'm just being honest oh, with you. It wow. really wasn't because I could be a lot more clever about it. I just assumed. I really, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I really could, you know. Um, but really, what that was about, you know, is it, in my mind when I wrote that song, I really was thinking about. I had a moment that kind of inspired all things Nelson. The first record, mm-hmm. the first tour, what I wanted, because my whole thing I had in mind was I wanted you to step into any venue that we would play, and from the second you hit the lobby. So when you walked out feeling like you'd just seen a Rocky movie two hours later, I wanted you to be immersed in a world mm-hmm. where the outside world went away and you walked into this place and you went into a completely different zone, a whole different planet. And that's what I wanted. And, and in writing that song, 
I envisioned that being the first song that we played with the show to our crowd. That's crazy because that's exactly it, what that song does. That's exactly right. That's that was always the intent. That yeah. was the intent was you guys are in a different world now. You're mm-hmm. in our world now. And we're going to take all of your insecurities away. We're going to take all of your problems and for the next two hours. You're not going to even know about them. You're not going to think about anything. You're not going to think about that person who's not returning your phone call mm-hmm. or that crush that is, is not being returned. You're not going to think about any of that stuff. You're here now with us and we got you. Yeah. We got your back. I love and it. we're all on the same side. And, and that was the real intent behind it. But you know what? If you want to take it the other way, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's okay. I but, just but, assumed. Uh, that was really, that was great. Yeah, the, the, it was always written as a, as a live set opener. Mm, I love it. Um, I love, too, the, the little, again, going back to Pixie Dust, um, whenever you guys sing Heaven, there's actually a, a choir singing the word Heaven. Or I don't know if it's just you guys, what's it called when you're, Oh, we're, we're multi-track. Multi-track. We're that's multi-track. But, were you? Well, that, okay. That's us, but we, yeah. we just did a little arrangement right there where we did the same arrangement with multiple voices that a choir would have yeah. done, but that's all yeah. us. But it's just a little stroke of genius that, of course, whenever you hear the word heaven, that it sounds like a heavenly choir just for that one word. Ah, that's a, that's. I'm glad you, know, you noticed. Of course. That's exactly how <laughs> it should be. Those are the pieces of magic that I love. Um, oh, thank you. Well, that, that, one, that one little magical moment took a lot of work. I believe it. <laughs> I believe it for that one half second moment. That was a lot of work in the era where like things weren't computerized. Uh, you had to wait true. for the tape machines to rewind every time. That's you know, right. that took a lot of work. I believe it. Well, it's, it, it paid off. It's so good. Uh, awesome. okay, okay. Track eight is, well, it starts off with Paul's interlude, which I'm really curious where, what the story is there. Were you just, did you hit record and then decide to, inc- to include that in the song, which is everywhere I go, which is the first song exactly you guys right. wrote. Yeah, tell us the story. Well, we were, it was the same night that we had done the track of the, uh, of the orchestra, and they had moved a big, giant grand piano into Studio A at Cherokee. And that room's wonderful. It's like one of the old-school Hollywood audio rooms where you see pictures of, like, Sinatra at a microphone surrounded by, you know, big, giant orchestra and stuff. It's one of those rare rooms. They don't, they don't really have them anymore because mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff is, pretty, is simulated now. But back then, you basically needed a huge space like that, and... The grand piano was a, it was a, I believe, 12 foot Bosendorfer grand piano in the middle of this room. Everybody had gone home. 
And uh, we all went in for a late night snack. I think we got Roscoe's chicken and waffles nice. and, and all nice. that. And disappeared into the into the the best into the lounge there. And, and we realized, you know, halfway through our meal that Paul was not there. Hmm. And uh, we walked into Studio A, into the control room, and Paul was out by himself. And the studio out there was completely dark. He was in the dark, hmm. and he was by himself, and he was playing that. And I think it was kind of zoned out to that. So without him knowing, we turned on the tape machine. Yeah. That's and exactly so, what uh, I hoped would happen because it's beautiful. And that's just what you want to imagine. Is that something exactly yeah. like that? Yep. Yep. And, and, and of course, we we, uh, we called back in the cellist uh, mm-hmm. on another day and had them come in and add their cello part. But, uh, no, that was all Paul. Mm. You know, Paul is, Paul is truly not only one of the best people I've ever met, but uh, just as a musician... I, any respect that Paul Markovich has as a composer, as a musician, he is—he really deserves because that guy is way overqualified to be in any pop rock band. <laughs> he's, he's truly that good. Not mm-hmm. not just as a writer, composer, uh, pianist, but as a singer as yeah. well. The guy's amazing. Good. Good. I'm glad we're giving him his, uh, his credit on this then. That song, you talk about songs really taking off live. When I listen to Everywhere I Go, this is a song I imagine being a real set piece live. Unfortunately, I didn't get to ever see you guys live back then. But am I right on that? Or was it? did you play it? Was, what was the status of this one? Yeah, Everywhere I Go actually was the last song. Was it? That we played I wondered. In our live set. I wondered. Because we wanted to, you know, because we, we went off for a, a, usually an encore, and that mm-hmm. was the last song in the encore that starts out obviously uh, slow with just me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it builds up to where it's a double time thing at the end, and, and it just, we just rocked that out forever, and that was a lot of fun. But that was actually, uh, truth be told, the very first true Nelson song ever written that's what i've heard yeah and it, and it and it wound up on on the after the rain record and uh, i started that song when uh, we, we had a, a really cool manager at the time named jeffrey shoecraft and he was really more of a mentor than a manager he had a partner named uh, paul palmer and paul was really kind of like the business guy mm-hmm. and jeffrey was really kind of the mentor you know his his game was really more of like an emotional spiritual thing and we really needed that, you know. After our dad died and stuff, Matt and I were pretty lost, and and we were really struggling to find the true north in our compass. And mm-hmm. and he was the, one of these guys that just came along. He was a believer early in, in the whole thing, but you know, he really felt that, you know, getting us to uh, to do what most Americans have never done, which is travel, was going to be the key to giving us the insight we would need to write a record eventually that would appeal to the world. Interesting. And, you know, he was, he was an Australian, and uh, at the time, uh, he was managing Little River Band. And Little River Band had been asked to play at the World Expo in 1988. And he he invited us over to Australia uh, to, you know, basically go over there and, and, and experience what it would be like being in, you know, a different country that far away from home. Mm-hmm. Now. He was an interesting guy because most people think, oh, yeah, that's really, sounds really cool. And, you know, you go to the Four Seasons and you kind of hang out there. Not Jeffrey. No, no. He wanted to give us a real experience. So <laughs> he made sure that he booked uh, us a rental in the an area called King's Cross in Sydney. Now, King's Cross is like Hell's Kitchen. It's mm-hmm. like uh, it, it really, really rough. Uh, heroin junkies nodding mm-hmm. off in the stoop of every 
every door. Hmm. It's very, very dangerous down there. You know, you got a couple of white kids like us, you know, being sheltered and, and stuff relatively, you know, going down there to this area. It was kind of terrifying. And, you know, it was about, they sent us down there about two weeks before Expo and stuff to you know, kind of experience the world and, you know, write supposedly and all that. And, uh, you know, I was feeling, uh, it was not at all what I expected and stuff. I was expecting kind of a cakewalk down there and it was really rough. And, and it was about three days in and I was by myself, uh, about 11 o'clock at night. And, uh, I think Matthew had gone to sleep and stuff. And I had a girlfriend at the time that I was really missing back home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't know what she was up to and, and all that stuff. Didn't know how faithful she was being because she had a tendency to wander. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there by myself, and that guitar riff kind of just came to me because it was mm. I was feeling really melancholy. And yeah. you can tell from the beginning of that song, it's it's a pretty melancholy song. It is, you know. Yeah, it is. Um, and and that's kind of where it came from. You know, I kind of zoned out and, and awesome. was feeling that way. And and that really actually turned out to be, in hindsight, uh, the very first true Nelson song that was written, and it wound up remaining, uh, you know, stay, having enough staying power to to wind up on the album, but. That's what I'll always think about. That's great. Two things. One, you know, the song that we uh, that we like ended our shows with, and the mm-hmm. song that we began Nelson with. That's crazy. Pretty interesting. That is a great yeah. counterpoint. And yeah, you're right. When I uh, when I write down, I was writing down kind of my notes and thoughts on each song. And for this one, I was saying that it feels a little bit darker, and it's almost a yep. power ballad, but not quite. And so you saying this about where your headspace was and where you were emotionally, that's exactly the feeling that this song would give you. Is sort of this. Oh, kind of a dark night of the soul, a little bit of longing, a little bit of confusion, but still rocking. That's the perfect. Yeah, that's I just perfect. want you to imagine that as that song was being written, you know, you could hear prostitutes arguing yeah. with each other outside the door and, you know, junkies knocking on the door and sirens in the distance. Yeah. You know, that it really it was like out of a scene out of a movie, but that's really kind of what was happening at the time. I get it. Perfect. Perfect imagery. Uh, okay, bits and pieces. We talked about this one earlier. I got to give another shout out to Jackie. This one is one of her favorites. It is a really excellent mix of kind of acoustic jangly guitars with the electric guitars, which is truthfully a hallmark in a lot of the songs on here. I think that's what gives you guys that pop rock sheen that ties back probably to the to your dad in a lot of ways. Um, never going full hair metal, but always having a foot in like classicism and then another foot in what's modern. This was, as you mentioned earlier, intended to be the first single, but it wasn't. 
It was really bright synths. Why was this song never released? Why not make it the fifth single or something? Well, you know, I don't really know. Hmm. Um, the, well, first off, by the time we'd done our fourth single, grunge was in full swing yeah, and we true. were over at the label. You know, so, I mean, uh, you know, we always thought, you know, hey, great, we can do, you know, five or six singles because we wanted nothing but singles on the album and that would have been cool and, and we would have fought for that if, uh, if, if the world and, and the label were behind, you know, a different mm -hmm. agenda. Uh, mm -hmm. But that, that didn't happen. But, you know, that, that particular song, it's, as I mentioned, John Kalodner really kind of always viewed us as the Hollies. Mm -hmm. and, and if you keep that in mind, yeah. that song is everywhere there with like the Hollies in Buffalo Springfield. You yep, know, it's, it's it got that, it's kind of got the sweet and sour. Yep. And a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always dug that song. I thought it was really cool. You know, Matt listens to it to this day and goes, "Man, I could have sung that better." <laughs> but Whatever. but it was, uh, you know, it was honest. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, the thing that was really really fascinating, people didn't didn't know. I mean, there there was also another change that had happened between, you know, our club band when we were working our way through L.A. You know, before we got signed and stuff, and before I learned, you know, it went from a, a drummer to a guitar player. Matthew, when I was the drummer throughout all of those years, Matthew was the lead singer. Was he? Matt was the lead singer, and, and we didn't have that two brothers singing together sound. It was like, it was a lot more traditional. Matthew was no. the lead singer, and then we would have a chorus. The chorus would come in, and there, there would be some vocals on the chorus, mm -hmm. and then it would go to you know back to one guy singing. What we put together when we were putting Nelson together is we were, we were realizing you know that whole Everly's influence, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. made us unique was the two brothers singing together. So right. rather than doing the traditional arrangement where you have the, the one lead singer and then the big choruses and all that kind of stuff with the harmonies, we actually, for the first time since, like guys like the Everleys, we wanted to feature the two guys singing together, yeah. like through the verses and stuff like that too, and making that a part of our sound. Now, up until that point, like I mentioned, Matthew had always been the lead singer, the guy in the lower register, and then the harmonies would, you know, pretty much be stacked on top of that, you okay. know, in the, you know, above that, and that was really my job. And quite by accident, one day when we were in the demo studio uh, with Matthew and me and Mark Tanner, we just happened to realize that my voice was just a little more, a little more guttural, a little more raw, a little more you know, I don't know, ballsy so for for holding the, the main vocal, mm. for, for having, you know, so basically at that particular time, Matthew and I flipped vocals. Yeah. And I then also became the guy that was singing the, the main vocal line, and Matthew started singing harmony because he's got a slightly higher range than I do. Yeah. And we realized that, and this is after cutting our teeth through the L.A. Club, years of L.A. Clubs, that that was the magic combination. That it really it. was the two it really of us, is. Yeah. you know, up front singing together, singing always together, like through the verses and stuff like that yeah. in a non-traditional way. And, and me taking the role of the main voice and Matthew taking the role of the harmony voice. And yeah. it just, it's just got a blend that works. It does. It wouldn't, you guys wouldn't be you without that. This, this album wouldn't have the depth or the, it wouldn't be as pleasing on the ear without your harmonies just going through every song it's not that's what makes nelson nelson is that you guys are this package deal that and both are bringing uh the magic equally it's not one guy over oh. the other that's what i think it amen is. brother yeah the package deal i like that and i'm going to use that like with firstborn sons is what, what we're doing right mm -hmm. now that was also a conscious choice it was a project that i started by myself 
You know, I, I started yeah. it by myself and I started about two years ago and then the whole COVID thing happened. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Matthew started to, to realize, you know, kind of after the fact I'd had uh, four or five songs already written and recorded and, uh, and he, and he kind of really heard where I was going with it. Yeah. And then we really, we really sat down and talked about it and we, we consciously said, look, you know, there's something that really does make us special. It is. And it, it feels, it feels unstoppable when we are mm-hmm. the package deal. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we're definitely doing that in, in this too. It's really kind of an identifiable sound. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll agree when you hear the music for the first time. I can't wait. Good. Can't wait. All right. The closer is Will You Love Me. It's a great closer. It's got a big chorus. question i had is that i think i read in an article somewhere that matthew was in charge of sequencing this album is that right that is correct he's okay. really good at that does he well he is and i think this album flows perfectly but it is one of those where all the hits are on the first side not that the beauty of an album like this is that there isn't any filler whereas so many albums that's you know aside from the singles a lot of it's filler that doesn't happen here but i am curious if you know what his philosophy was putting the singles in the front and putting these album tracks in the back. Well, just remember, I mean, they were never, none of them were ever considered to be album tracks. Yeah, we never considered point. them album tracks. We, we actually always thought that we were going to hopefully make a record that we could mine gold from for four or five years. That's perfect. We were hoping to have set. We were yeah. hoping to have seven or eight singles off of that record. You could have, and yeah. and it was just you know kind of a happy accident where we were gonna you know work our way through the you know side one and and start hitting side two. That was yeah. always the intention. Yeah. You know, therefore, if you see where like you know bits and pieces was, it was always going to be a single. Yeah. And we just kind of, we just ran out of the brunch clock. You know what can I say? You know, just we got truncated unfairly, mm-hmm. but that was never our intention. And you know, to have will you love me? at the end of the album it was always fun to you know give it a kind of lift but it, you, you're going to kind of notice when you listen to will you love me will you love me sounds slightly different hmm. than any of the other songs on that record and a lot of people can't put their finger on it you know what makes mm-hmm. that song sound or feel i should say slightly different that was the one song on the record that we did not co-write with mark tanner Oh. And that was the only time that was the only time that we actually argued with Mark about that particular one because you know Mark had his agenda in mind as far as like you know fulfilling his publishing commitments and all that, and you know he wanted to be able to say oh you know I co-wrote every song in this record. Now Matt and I co-wrote that song with a wonderful man named Brad Bailey, 
Now, Brad Bailey was one of thousands and thousands of people who moved from the Midwest to Hollywood at one point with the idea in mind of being a hit artist or songwriter. Mm -hmm. And he was just one of those guys that had been pursuing that dream for 25 years and had never caught a break. But he was unflappable. I mean, this guy was going to going to keep on trying and keep on trying and we met each other and uh it was an introduction through a mutual friend that we sat down for one songwriting session and he was so kind and so supportive and funny and gentle and easygoing and such an amazing contrast in energy from mm -hmm. mark tanner when mm -hmm. we would work with mark because mark was always you know very you know kind of you know intense and mm -hmm. you know egotistical and 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 all that and he, he had a very different energy than Brad and we really enjoyed that that day uh, the whole day and at the very end of the evening you know we hadn't gotten anything accomplished at all you know we just talked about life and you know his girlfriend Priya uh, you know uh, made the best Indian food we've ever had oh nice apartment and you know in, in Hollywood and stuff and you know he had a 40 pound house cat named King and <laughs> it was just a, one of those great days and and we got to the end of the night realized you know we had so much fun just kind of hanging out shooting the shit and being new friends that we hadn't really written anything. Mm. And it was at that moment that Will You Love Me came up. It just mm. like happened and it happened quick. It happened like over a 20 minute period of time. Amazing. And, and it just like, bam, it just, it happened. And we got this, you know, really cool demo that we made of it in his, in his uh, apartment and stuff. And, you know, I, I played the guitar part on that and I actually liked my performance so much that we actually flew in the cassette, demo guitar part that I put down that's the final record is really? uh, that guitar part yeah and, and and did that and we had a pretty pretty good row sitting there in in the commissary there at Cherokee Studios arguing with Mark Tanner when it came down to select the final songs for After the Rain he was like no we got to do this other song of mine we got to do this other song of mine <sighs> and and we just said listen mm -hmm. this is the right thing to do yeah. we want this song on this record it's going to be the last song on this record mm -hmm. because Fuck it, Brad Bailey deserves a goddamn break, and that's for real. It's like I love oh, that. You, you've got every other song on this record. Yeah, you're gonna. Sorry, you're not gonna win this one. Brad's gonna get this one. I love that. And I'll never forget it. If you notice, that was the B side of Love and Affection. Oh, so he got to he got it got he got good mailbox money for this then. Huge, good, good for Brad. For him, it was so great, and I'll never forget that Brad. We we played the Universal Amphitheater, which was our hometown place. Mm -hmm. First time we played there, we were really blessed. We sold it out in five minutes. Place was packed, and I'll never forget Brad and Priya and their parents. No way. Came to the show. We got them tickets. Got them seats of honor and all that kind of stuff. He got to hear us, you know, play mm -hmm. that song live to a sold out crowd of people screaming it and all of that. And it, it uh, I, you know, I'm kind of choking up mm -hmm. uh, talking about it because um, cause, uh, you know, Brad actually wound up passing about a year oh. after that. Really? Oh. And, yeah, really. And uh, it's it's one of the things I'm really proud of. Oh, you, know, you, you know, should be. Oh. Oh, I'm all goosebumps you know, now. You know, wow. fighting for that moment. Yes. Um, yeah, it's... You know, score one for the little guy. Yes, and, and Brad, that's exactly he's right. One of the best, he's just one of the best people I've ever met in this business. And uh, unfortunately, we had a very uh, you know short amount oh. of time with him. But 
you know, he actually was one of the, one of the guys that got to spike the ball in yeah. the end zone. Good for in him. The, in the biggest of ways, you know, and he he wound up he got he was able to get married uh, to his girlfriend uh, and and set themselves mm-hmm. up with the mailbox money and and uh, right. that was just honestly I got to be honest with you it was mm-hmm. it was uh, one of the moments that that uh, that God spoke through the two of yeah. us yeah and said you know this needs to happen this way and I'm, I'm really I'm really glad that it it did happen I believe I really it did I really oh did. I'm so that's I'm all. I'm choked up too. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful that that worked out. That good things can happen, you know? Yeah, Um, they can. Yeah. Okay. I got two things left. I want to, I want to, one more question from Jackie. She says, I'd love to know what about the album they are surprised to hear fans talk about all these years later? Well, I might, I might have, I might have touched on this a little earlier, but, you know, After the Rain has a line in it that like my dad had a line in his song garden party that really summed up his life which was you can't please everyone you got to please yourself mm-hmm. you know and he he learned that in his own experience after a lifetime of being the person he thought everybody wanted him to be mm-hmm. and that was really the the first time in his life doing the stone canyon band when people considered him completely over that mm-hmm. he made that statement but for me um the thing that I'm most surprised about still to this day is the enduring quality that yeah. the one line that, that I was able to write in After the Rain, uh, which is don't be afraid to lose what was never meant to be, has had mm-hmm. on the amount of people it's had an effect on. Mm-hmm. Um, in my safe, uh, not 20 feet away from me right now, mixed in with all the stuff no one's ever going to see, mm-hmm. um, there is a stack of letters that I have kept throughout all the years. Mm-hmm. I've got about 30 of them, and they're from people all over the world. And the one thing that they have in common is they quote that one line from mm-hmm. that one song, and every one of those letters is a letter of thanks from a person who was at a moment in their life where they were considering taking their lives. And they happened to hear that one line in that one song, and they thought differently. And whether they picked up a helpline help or called a friend or whatever, I've got this one letter in particular from a little girl who spent the entire day at school. She was 13 years old at the time, spent the entire day at school giving away all of her things to people, giving, giving mm. all of her favorite things away mm. to, to all of her people. And her plan, uh, her, her family, she was living with her grandmother. Uh, both of her parents were drug addicts and oh. she got removed from the household. And, uh, her plan was to finish out the day at school, give all of her things away and go home and take her grandfather's gun when uh, the grandmother was away at work and end her life. Hmm. And she was sitting there in the living room with the gun on her lap and uh, she had MTV uh, playing in the background and after the rain happened to come wow. on at that particular moment. Wow. And she heard that one line in the, in the song and she actually you know, called the, the suicide prevention hotline and she was writing me as an adult and she sent me in that letter, a photograph of, uh, you know, her and her husband and her three children. No way. Oh yeah. Good for you. So, yeah. So, you know, you kind of sit there and go, you know, you know, ultimately we're talking about rock and roll. Yeah. And, and the music is wonderful. And it's the soundtrack to our lives. I mean, there, there are friends, there are time machines. Yeah. Uh, they're the friends that we could always rely on yeah. through our tough times. Um, they've always been there for us. That's why we love music so much. 
you know? But underneath that, every now and again, rarely, you know, you're able to be as a, as an artist, if you're really, really lucky as a composer, you're, you're able to be a part of a Brad Bailey moment Mm. or a Mm -hmm. letter written to you moment Mm -hmm. where it makes you slow your roll just for a second. Yeah. And, and reminds you that none of this is about the cars or the chicks mm-hmm. or the plaques on the wall mm-hmm. or the fame. It's not about that. That's not the stuff that's enduring. That's mm-hmm. not the stuff that goes on. You know, what really goes on is, uh, is the difference that you're able to make. So I think that they, the answer to your question mm-hmm. would be the thing that surprises me the most after all of these years is... Uh, couple of guys who were considered over with a father who was recently dead and an unfair mm-hmm. press who had attacked him and the family and they were trying to make sense of the world and mm-hmm. they tried on for size being you know takers uh, the year after their father died and it didn't work for them they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't feel that was suited for them they did they tried on being victims for a while that didn't suit them either mm-hmm. and they were just trying to make sense of things and you know in a little bedroom in the in the Palisades in California there with a dog with really bad gas and <laughs> 105 degrees outside, a song was written yeah. that wound up profoundly changing some people's lives. Yeah. That's, that's the thing about. that surprises me the most. Yeah. That's, the, that's the thing that surprises me the most after all of these years is, you know, there's a, there's a layer that's a little deeper underneath everything that if you're really lucky, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you can be a part of, of moments like that. And my life, I'm, I'm really blessed because, you know, even if things were to end right here and right now, I'd be able to look back on moments like like the story I told you about Brad mm-hmm, Bailey mm-hmm. or like I told you about, you know, the story about that little girl mm-hmm. or fighting for the video of, mm-hmm. of After the Rain to stay exactly the way mm-hmm. I dreamed it and mm-hmm. wrote it when the MTV people wanted me to cut out all the spiritual references and mm-hmm. just go to the live performance thing. But, you know, having that kid escape through music when his parents or when his father was yelling at him, yeah. that resounded with kids. That that really made a difference yeah. to people. And you know what? Um, there There isn't a day that goes by that I'm not grateful for that. And it has cost us everything. Yeah. I mean, truly, everything. It's nice. cost us millions of dollars in, in inheritances and relationships and our health and yeah. I wouldn't have had it any other way Good. because we really, truly had the greatest job in the world. We yeah. really do. Yeah. Um, that is so beautiful. And because of that, I'm going to give my, I'm going to read something Jackie sent me to send to say to you as the final word. And it, cause it relates to all of this. Few albums bring me as much joy as after the rain. It reminds me of a time and place and a boy and all that good stuff about being in high school. Even the tough stuff makes me smile all these years later. That boy who sent me love and affection on a mixtape blew me off the dance floor during after the rain. Blew me off on the dance floor. That's not good. My daughter is now the same age I was when I listened to this album every day. When I want to remember what it's like to be 16, I play after the rain and I can't stop smiling. Tell them thank you from me. And uh, I think there's a generation of us who feel that way. And some of us have heartbreaking stories and some of us have happy time stories. And uh, you guys were the soundtrack to that. So thanks for everything, Gunnar. I'm glad we got to pay tribute to you and this album. Thank you. Well, thank you. And and what you just read is, is honestly, honestly, 
the reason why uh, we've always done what we've done and will continue to do what we do, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it, it, it's important to us. I mean, that's everything to us. So yeah. thank you and thank Jackie for the letter and thank you for the kind words and for all you of your listeners out there for supporting us throughout all these years. You know, um, you you've had our backs just like we feel like we've been lucky enough to have yours. Yep, and you we'll, we'll, we've got we're in this together, man. Yep. Thank you, Gunner, for chatting with me. All right, there you have it. Gunner Nelson, After the Rain. I hope, if nothing else, if you thought, I don't know. I don't know how, where people stand sometimes with their opinion on hair metal. I don't know what else to call it. 80, they're not 80s either. They're 90s. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. That kind of stuff. I feel like it, it gets the short end of the stick because that stuff is better than than academics or whatever would lead you to believe. That, that music is fantastic. And so... If you learned something in here, if you went into this conversation with a preconceived idea of who Nelson was or how you felt about those songs or what this album might sound like, I hope we were able to blast some of that away because Seriously After the Rain is one of the hallmark pop rock albums from that era. It is so good and it stands up today. It is so good. Anyway, and go back if you want. The Gunner had been on our show before because I hosted the first... Well, the songwriting panel at the first Rock and Pod Expo in Nashville a few years ago. And Gunner was on that panel. It was great. And then we had Matthew on uh, about a year after that, or shortly after that, I believe, to talk about the vinyl reissue of After the Rain. That conversation is a blast. So it was so good to finally be able to sit down and have a long, thoughtful conversation with one of these guys. I love them, and I hope you did too. All right, thanks, everybody.